Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Today on Off Talkle Empire. Well, we can't come up with any better jokes for Iowa football than their own coaches. We've tempted two field goals shorter than 35 yards in the first quarter of a conference title game while watching their opponent put two balls in the seats by home run. But manager Kirk Ferentz is still convinced he can win with a sack bunt down eight runs in the ninth inning. What a rewarding experience for the Hawkeye fans who made the trip. All ten of them. Today on Off Tackle Empire. Your source for Big Ten Talk. It's Off Tackle Empire. Welcome back to Off Tackle Empire, which is regrettably a Michigan podcast now. Oh, I heartily disagree, but I suppose. I mean, so that does that mean let's see, we started this in 2017? Who? Well, it would have just been an Ohio State podcast the whole time, but we know they're not listening to us. They can go to dedicated sites for their own, where we don't, where nobody says anything mean about them. I think that's true. Both of those teams. Now, I, I think based on. So if, if you exclude our own teams, probably the team we talk about, this is really a Nebraska podcast, if you think about it. Yeah, based, more or less, the actually. The time we spend on each team, relatively speaking. I got to say, you know, I'm in a really good mood considering I'm a Nebraska fan now. <laughs> well, I mean, in that time, we've covered three regular season conference losses by the Buckeyes. Uh, Wisconsin lost three regular season games in September. Yeah. Yeah. Well, anyway, we, we got a lot to get through, so we'll get right into it here. Uh, this week going to be in somewhat of a different format because there are no games to preview. We're just going to go over the week that was in conference championship game week, uh, discuss a little bit of the bowl previews. Now. So a lot of them aren't official yet, but the obviously the playoff matchups were announced today and then the rest of the new year's six bowls were as well and then most of the others it leaked almost immediately like i don't think those are official announcements because you know espn and cbs sports like none of the major outlets actually have schedules posted yet but it's come out who's going where and there's a couple interesting storylines there but before we look ahead we must look behind and in conference championship game there were two games on friday night and they went how we told everyone they would go. Pac-12 championship game, Utah pushed Oregon's shit in again. And we declared that would be the case. And I just, I don't know why you would have thought anything different would happen. They just did it like two weeks ago. And it became apparent pretty quickly in a game that it was like watching, it was it was basically like watching the scene from Return of the King at the very beginning when Smeagol's just icing Deagle, strangling him to death, holding him down and like feeling his heartbeat. Like that was the vibe of Kyle Whittingham, Utah, just taking Oregon's wheels off. Well, because it's not like the game against the regular season game was any less important than this one for Oregon. That game, you know, they needed to win that game to stay in the playoff discussion. 
Yeah. Uh, so I'm sure I'm sure that anything that they that they wouldn't have had anything new for this game that they didn't have for that one. No, they pretty clearly emptied out the bag of tricks. Of course, sort of the funny the funny sideline here is going to be Mario Cristobal and whether he takes the Miami job. So we're sitting here recording on Sunday night, December fifth, and the scuttlebutt around that situation is that whoever whoever has offered. Crystal ball the job with Miami and there's like 68 trustees and no sitting athletic director. So who knows how that works? Uh, but they have offered him the job with a deadline to accept of noon tomorrow. <laughs> and so it, Miami, a, a job that is sure historically got some nice benefits to it close to a big talent pipeline and everything, but still has been adrift for the better part of 20 years now is issuing an ultimatum to a coach at a top 15 job who's got no competition in his division, maybe in his conference, not Lincoln Riley's at USC, but still no competition in his division to speak of infinite resources from Nike and a recruiting system that's working perfectly well, even though they haven't really won the big breakthrough game yet. Miami is issuing that coach an ultimatum of, Hey, you know, if you want to come take this terrible job with, you know, fair weather fans and crazy power structures at the university, you need to decide quickly, or we're going to leave the current guy in place. By the way, that's the chaser to this whole shot, which is if they don't get Chris Ball, they're just going to leave Diaz in the job. <laughs> yeah. See, the thing is that that aspect of it is, is, is maybe a little less, you know, the, the first aspect of it, the ultimate is maybe a little bit less funny when you consider that like Mario Cristobal in theory, like everything I know about him suggests that Miami is kind of where he wants to be. It's where he's from. It's where most of his career took place. He was, of course, he was, of course, the coach that led FIU to prominence. But yeah, nothing is quite as funny as the fact that that should he decline, Manny Diaz is just going to continue to be the Miami head coach. (laughs) And like none of this is private information either. So it's just, I know we're blurring our lines between recap and coaching carousel, but it's it's relevant because we talk about Oregon. If Manny Diaz stays the coach after this story gets out there, how does he look a single commit in the, or recruit in the face and be like, oh, yeah, no, I'm going to be here. Miami definitely wants me to coach this job. It's like, no, bro, the, you, the replacement just turned him down and they couldn't find anybody better because they were maybe the fifth or sixth best job in this cycle. <laughs> so, yeah. like, I guess it's kind of, you know, I guess, I don't know, how would your wife react if you gave somebody else's wife until tomorrow to decide whether or not she wants to marry you? And then, uh, you know, and then if that doesn't work, well, then your wife is still your wife. (laughs) And then you just pretend it never happened. Yeah. And then we just go, all right, what do you want to do for dinner then? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, shit. Well, that didn't work out. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, uh, as for Utah, they... It feels like they have been kind of like this the last few years and not gotten um, quite enough credit. But, you know, of course, last year was very weird. And a couple of years ago, they they looked well, a few, no, it was three years ago now. They they looked a lot like this team, but got manhandled by Northwestern, who, despite winning the division, was very bad by all metrics. Yeah. And so we'll see what they're able to do. Once we get to their bowl destination, of course, winning the Pac-12 entitles them to a trip to Pasadena, which I have to assume is the first time they've been there. I can't imagine that before they were it is. a Pac-12 member that they ever would have had a reason to be affiliated with it even, so it's got to be their first trip. That's good for them. Uh, we'll see. It's not too bad of a trip either. 
But I mean, really, the the real point about the Pac-12 title game is once it became clear that it was a one-sided ground-based affair, why would you watch it when the Conference USA title game was on and it was lit, just like we told you it would be? Why don't, why doesn't anybody ever listen to us, Steve? All we do is provide good ideas and put our vast and useless repertoire of college football knowledge to work. I'll tell you exactly why nobody ever listens to us. watch the Pac-12 title game. I'll tell you exactly why nobody ever listens to us. Because of what's about to happen now, I'm about to crack open a win fight try Brewster of the week by uh, Royal Oaks very own Moonhound Brewworks, which, as as savvy listeners may know, is uh, in my kitchen. It's Nutgers that I still had a little bit left over uh, from when I went down to the Nut Illin Nutgers basketball game on Friday. I did manage to watch most of the second half of the Conference USA title game. But, of course, why is this the win fight try Bruce through the week? Because, man, college football season's been over for over a week for me. And for this Bull Preview podcast, my stance is just that. College football's over. Go home. All your teams need to lose and get it over with and join me in basketball season. <laughs> but speaking of basketball, it was basketball on grass. Uh, I was a bit surprised to see that. UTSA had really run it up on Western Kentucky to the tune of 42 to 13. And then Bailey Zappi happened again and again and again and again. Yeah. I actually, I wasn't terribly surprised that the UTSA was able to score a lot of points. What again, Western Kentucky's defense is real bad. And even as good as their offense looks down to down and moving between the twenties in both the games against Michigan state and Indiana, they had a little bit of a trouble finishing in the red zone. And so I figured once they got to a better defense as far as Conference USA is concerned and UTSA that they might have those issues again, and they did. But still, as you say, I mean, Zappi ended up throwing for, I think, like 577 or something in this game. And they have no problem going up and down the field. So what's going to be interesting here is uh, their coach's name escapes me. Do you happen to remember it off the top of your head? Uh, UTSA? Yeah, no, Western Kentucky's, I mean. Oh, my God, I don't remember Western Kentucky. Wait, that's Tyson Helton, right? Yes. So unless I'm remembering incorrectly here, he had just come over from Houston Baptist, and he brought Zappi and all those receivers with him. So I don't think this is going to be something that you can expect to be – like, you're not going to see this again. I'm fairly sure Zappi is using his COVID year. Uh, and you would expect they're not going to have quite the same level of success. What does it look like now that he has to build an FBS team like that on his own instead of basically like like prefabricating it at the FCS level and then importing it into a Division One team uh, or an FBS team? It's just going to be like an interesting thing. I mean, I, they were one of the more fascinating stories of the year, honestly. Like I, you don't see many teams that throw it like that at this level. Yeah, I was really... You know, I kind of really more than anything in this game, I just wanted it to be as lit as possible for as long as possible. So unfortunately, Western Kentucky couldn't quite uh, overcome what ended up being an eight point deficit right at the very end. And one of the thing was one of the things was, uh, you know, UTSA got out to that 29 point lead. And then Western Kentucky was just every time they get the ball, they'd go down and score real quickly. But UTSA just kept converting third and long after third and long after third and long on their drive. So they didn't score, but they killed a lot of clock. Well, they did score one, but it was, uh, you know, they nearly Western Kentucky nearly made up a 29 point deficit, uh, which I believe would have been the most in a bowl game ever. Um, it would, not a bowl, that's not a bowl game. The most in a conference championship game. Sorry. 
Oh yeah, well that I have no idea. Um, because I was gonna say, I mean, Michigan State was down twenty something against Baylor in the Cotton Bowl. I don't think it was twenty nine, but it was a considerable comeback like that. But the other thing that I got out of this game is another lesson in kind of late game management situations, and again, the things that we see over and over again that just make us shout when we see, so. As you mentioned, Western Kentucky has the ball. There's less than a minute left. They're driving. They're around midfield. And UTSA, instead of just opening the umbrella and dropping eight or nine guys, rushes five. They bring pressure. And because of that, on the last two plays of the game, you know, they're in incredible Hail Mary range around right around midfield, just slightly on the offensive side of it. But Zappi couldn't tee up a very catchable ball either time because he had to move around in the pocket too much doesn't want to get one of his linemen tagged with a hold. And so, again, rushing five results in uncatchable passes. And I think the second one was actually intercepted as time expired. It was indeed. I mean, they just had, they just kind of had no chance. And, you know, that I think of that as the opposite of, you know, some of the Hail Marys that I think of, uh, like on the college level, one of the ones I think of that, you know, really um, illustrates the importance of rushing guys is that, Northwestern uh, Nebraska one, Ron Kellogg, when you just see uh, yeah. him, like he yeah. just, he, he's, he steps to his right just because like, okay, I think I might be able to throw it a little better from here. There's just nobody anywhere near him. He just kind of casually steps up. I mean, he just let him survey the field and just confidently step into a throw. I mean, very few quarterbacks are not got, like, you might be getting your maximum coverage, but you're going to get the most accurate throw the quarterback can possibly make. Yeah, well, and the other thing is if you decide to just play coverage and there's no pass rush at all, the receivers have the time to get all the way down the field and then turn around and get a better position. Like if you force the quarterback to throw kind of quickly, it makes the Hail Mary harder to catch for the receivers too. So, Or you could play it like the Vikings did and t- today in their <laughs> loss to the 0-10-1 Lions and just rush three, but have everybody defending like three to five yards deep in the end zone. It's like, okay, we'll let them score the touchdown, but we're not going to let them run out of the back of the end zone. We'll give up that underneath stuff like the goal line. Yeah, they're going to fire Mike Zimmer tomorrow, if not sooner, uh, dropping the five and seven. Oh, I guess the only reason they couldn't is theoretically they're still not eliminated, but they lose another game in the next two weeks. I think they fire him, no problem. I just, I cannot believe the way they are wasting Kirk Cousins' career up there. Just unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, so... Anyway, um, goodness, Baylor uh, won their third conference title in the last 10 years, if you can believe that, took down Oklahoma State, which uh, in a game which really highlighted the difference in this year's Big 12 versus iterations in the past. And you think of 21 to 16 is the final score in the Big 12 title game. (laughs) You think of Big 12 players, you think of some deep threat receivers, but more importantly, you think of quarterbacks throwing it 50 times a game. You think of Oklahoma State quarterbacks, you go back to the Zach Attack Robinson, the Brandon Whedon year. There was, uh, oh my God, there's, who, who were the other guys? I mean, and they've had plenty of good quarterbacks, is your point. And, and you you normally think of what's the reason Oklahoma State lost a big game. It's not because of their quarterback. And that was very much the case in this game. I, like what they're getting from Spencer Sanders in that position relative to the run of excellence they'd had really going back like 15 years is just jarring. Like I knew that they were definitely a different kind of team this year because all you have to do is look at their scores and look at their box scores. And you see, yeah, this team plays much better defense and they're, offense is nowhere near what it usually is 
And so there are the, a couple of things to this. First of all, now the Big 12 is actually out of the playoff, despite ESPN blurting that fact at us since Oklahoma lost their first game, however long ago that was. Um, nothing's ever actually decided until the last week of the season. There's always teams that are still alive. And so this, and by the way, same thing could very well have been true of Oregon if things had gone differently. If they'd won their game, Cincinnati had lost, there would have been a case to jump Oregon into the field. Um, so the Pac-12 really wasn't eliminated either. People just say that because it's, I don't know why they say that. I don't know why ESPN in particular is so eager to say, well, this conference can't possibly make it. It's like, well, do you just not want anyone from that entire footprint to watch any of your stuff? Well, yeah, I mean, that's the thing. Oklahoma was the only one from the Big 12 that had the mandate to college, you know, to college football playoff entitlement, just as Clemson had the mandate. And I guess Florida State had the mandate, and you could convince me that Miami did, even though they haven't ever made it. But <laughs> the point is, you know, the ACC wasn't eliminated. Clemson was eliminated. The ACC didn't have a down year. Clemson did. The Big 12 didn't have a down year. Oklahoma did. Um, and, and everybody said that, oh, well, the ACC, you know, I think we said this last last week that uh, ESPN was saying that the ACC is just is just awful this year. It's just terrible. You know, nobody needs to watch the ACC now because Clemson's gone and Clemson's the only dudes that we care about for for uh, conference championship or, you know, for playoff purposes. And then the ACC was fantastic watching. Um, same thing with the, the, the Big 12. It's just the perception is, well, the team that's made it that we're used to making it uh, isn't going to be the one. So we can no just assume that yes. no one else yeah. is going to make it. Right. And of course, I mean, the actual field we got this year, Michigan, first time ever, Cincinnati, first time ever. Uh, Georgia has made it once before, but only once. And then, of course, Alabama is a perennial. But even they, like if they if they had lost, it would have been an entirely new field. I, I don't know if Notre Dame would have been the fifth team in, like it could have been Oklahoma State. And so, there were so many possibilities. And so it just, for whatever reason, it made me think back to, Sometime after Oklahoma's first loss, shortly after it, some talking head on ESPN just just belching out the opinion that the Big 12 was eliminated from the playoff because Oklahoma lost. I'm like, that's not true. Like, <laughs> that's miles from true. And the other funny thing, so we were talking about this game, you and I, a little bit as it happened. And it caused me to look up something. I was trying to remember, like, I was like, you know, with the way that the results played out between Baylor and Michigan, um, Utah and Pitt, there were four first time conference championship game winners in the power five. And we got back and forth about some semantics about it. And so I went down a little wormhole into Baylor football and they've actually won 10 conference titles in their history. Most of those when they were with the SWAC, but of course, to, you know, I was always under the impression that before our Bryles, there was just a wasteland there. And true, they had some pretty lengthy droughts, but then they also had, of course, the conference title in 1980 at like the peak of the SWAC's powers. Yeah, the South. So we're talking about cheating their asses off SMU. We're talking about Texas A&M, Arkansas, Texas, uh, Houston when they were good. Yeah, and so and still Baylor crawled to the top of that pile in 1980. When again, like I, my impression of Baylor in that time period was that they were basically Northwestern in Texas, and I was like, this is so strange. And then you came up with something that we have actually discussed before and you, cause you just text me the word in all caps, single Terry. Like, yeah. like, Oh yeah. He had like five year, billion tackles. Yeah. Average like 28 tackles a game or something. <laughs> just like single handedly, like just a 
cross-eyed psycho in glasses and a helmet just like <laughs> tackling it just it, i think the single season tackles record might still be his even though they played a shorter season and he's definitely got like two it's or three a bit like he's basically yeah. as the linebacker version of barry sanders the running back because barry sanders <laughs> records are still intact even though they didn't count bowl games and stuff back then it's just he he did shit by such an unre- just such an unreasonable margin that it's never going to be yeah, like they're, they're like playing with a running clock and he still has 31 tackles in a game. <laughs> it's just like, always interesting how like this certain historic uh, data points end up. And that's like, yeah, of course that guy ended up being an absolute anchor. And yet, like, yeah, that's the kind of talent that it takes for a Bears to win a Super Bowl, a guy who's enough to make Baylor good before Art Riles. So anyway, <laughs> that's a nice little historical anecdote for everybody. More importantly, um, NIU just bulldozed Kent State in the Maxian ship. Uh, Kent State wearing some great uniforms, by the way. Both uniforms are really good. NIU had kind of the beveled look on their lettering and numbers, similar to Texas A&M, but they had a bit of a 1990s look with the red and black. Yeah, fantastic. And I like these two games. And there was a oh man, what was the other game? I was Cal USC. Yes. Yes, so the, the uniforms that Cal was wearing, I was just like, where, where did these, like, these are the uniforms they're hiding for their bland, ba- I mean, look, look, the script Cal helmet is great, uh, but the shade of blue they're using was so much better, kind of like that, I mean, really, like, much closer to, like, a, the pit blue that they wear, like, that. Yeah, see, I'm glad that pit has finally gone back to their ancestral colors, because, God, those look great. Um, yeah, and we don't, but, yeah, that gives you an idea of, like, navy, like, it, it, we need another team wearing navy, like we do another red and white team. Yeah. So, you know, that, that should give you an idea of just about how competitive the Mac title game was. Uh, you know, Kent State scored a few points late to make it look more competitive, but no, man, I, I watched a good chunk of the first half here and NIU got whatever. They, it, it, you know what it looked like? It looked like Wisconsin playing a Mac team. Where it's just it did. Every play, six yards, eight yards, 12 yards, eight yards on the ground. Kent State just couldn't do anything about it. NIU ended up running the ball 61 times and throwing it 15. <laughs> and of course, even with that minimal, you know, like should have been wide open play action the whole time. Rocky Lombardi still only completed seven of those passes. Uh, no touchdowns, one interception. He rushed for three touchdowns, but he didn't have any through the air. And just like, tell me he isn't a tailor-made Iowa QB. He's from Clive, Iowa. Completes less than half of his pass, of a low volume of passes. Doesn't throw touchdowns. Has one, you know, a manageable number of turnovers. You really mean to tell me Rocky Lombardi wouldn't have been an upgrade over what Iowa had at quarterback this year? I pick up the phone, Brian. Uh, get whatever you <laughs> get the guy. Get the kid some high V nil money or whatever it is you guys do out there and upgrade your situation. I'm going to break a promise that I made. Um, Sean Lewis was a, one of these succession of coaches that, that I saw in um, on the other sideline in the Lovey Smith era where I was like, shit, this guy seems like he's a lot better at coaching football than our guy, was and that, it's his I mean, first game. That, how, how many teams during the Lovey Smith area would you, would you say Illinois played where you didn't think that that's, that's a complete pretext to bring up Illinois. When they well, but that. it happened, but it happened. It happened twice with Matt coaches coaching their first game. The other one was ball States, Mike new who also won his division in the Mac last year. Um, and of course, Chris Creighton was another one, but we already kind of knew about him. They did, I believe make it to a Mac title game at, at some point, but point is 
I knew that Akron's Tom Arth had no chance because we bulldozed them 42 to three. It's like, if you can't even make Illinois fans boo, then you don't deserve to be coaching in the Mac. So it's nice. Yep. He's. Yep. So yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's Sean Lewis getting Kent state to, they, they, they could have played for that. Had they won this, it would have been their first conference title since what? 1972. Was it? Uh, yes, I believe that. Yeah. Cause it was when Saban was a player there. <laughs> yeah. Inspiring yeah. stuff. And again, and they I had the helmets, but they had the helmets and the uniforms that looked uh, a lot like that, but I just really uh, hope Sean Lewis doesn't take a crappy ACC job like Duke or Virginia. I, neither of those schools have made their hires yet. Correct. I don't believe no. No, after after Duke again thought that they were in a position where they could muscle out David Cutcliffe and be better for it, and um, Bronco Mendenhall just went Mendenhall quit. Well, bye, <laughs> bye. <laughs> uh, that's that's strange. I I would I think there's probably going to be more that comes out to that story because it sounds. That's one where it sounds like it was perhaps not as mutual as some of these other parting of the ways situations you see. And he also very much left the door open. It sounds like he's basically going to collect himself and then maybe consider another, whether it would be coaching or administration or whatever, that he's not really like, he's not hanging it up. Um, It's a, this situation is not working anymore. It wasn't, it always seemed like an odd situation though, to, to go from your long tenured coach at BYU of all places, which is a very, specific culture to put it mildly and then going to virginia which is first off thousands of miles away um second a completely different kind of animal as far as you're in the acc is you know and uh your rivals are very dense geographically and i mean i I don't know it just always seemed kind of weird it's not much of a surprise to me if if that's just what he decided that like well you know this ultimately didn't turn out to be as good a fit for me as i'd hoped Kind of, you know, here's what I would observe, which is he got them to the Orange Bowl two years ago using basically the last of the incredible talent Mike Wonden piled up and never did anything with. But he never really had much recruiting success himself. And it's one thing. So he still had his recruiting ties in Utah with the LDS community, but he could never get very many of them to come all the way to Virginia. He'd, He'd have like a handful of them in every class. And like you said, that's just the thing where it feels like you've got to have, that's got to be a large piece of your culture. I, I don't know how much sense it makes to dabble in recruits who are going to take two-year missions in the middle of their college eligibility, you know, like stuff like that. It, it feels like if you, if your entire roster is built around those, you're better equipped for it. And they're like, there, there's got to be still some culture. Like it brain. seems, it seems weird for Virginia to have like one of their major talent pipelines be the Mormon church in Utah, it just, like right. for Virginia, that just seems weird. Because even with Mendenhall's ties there, it's still going to be hard to convince those kids to leave home when, I mean, Utah is good. Utah state is on a little bit of an upswing right now. They've, they've won their conference championship game. And BYU, BYU is still good. Away. So like at, at best, even with Mendenhall's history of success there, he's like, he, I can't imagine that he's at the top of many of those kids' peccadores, and it's not like it's that deep of a pool of talent. Like, there are lots of good players relative to the population in Utah, but it's not like it's, you know, Louisiana or something, where even if you're third or so in the pecking order, you can still expect some really good kids. Like, I just, it, it, yeah, strange is the best word for it. Um, Speaking of Utah State. Say, yeah, 
Uh, look at that. A Brady Hoke team that couldn't do anything on offense against a good opponent. What an unexpected turn of events. I could never have seen this coming. Yeah, it, it, this wasn't close, by the way. Utah State 46, San Diego State 13. 13 points has got to be the most Brady Hoke total in a bowl game ever. Would you agree? Uh, conference championship, yeah. Or, yeah, shit. All right. Well, you know, they scored 13 more points than two Big Ten teams whose best player was their punter this weekend, which was Illinois and Rutgers. <laughs> I mean, like, it's cool to have your best player as your punter, but uh, you usually end up having a losing season. Yeah, because it's really hard to score points with your punter. <laughs> yeah. Uh, this game, in my opinion, was pretty well decided by the time Utah State got out to a two-score lead because that is not how San Diego State wants to play. No, they're, I mean, they're they're Brady Hoke, Michigan, or more recently, they're Iowa. They're a team that relies on their defense and superflu- and superlative special teams, but get them in anything approaching a shootout and they're going to run out of bullets real quick. And that's what we saw here. Also in the afternoon slate, the Sun Belt Championship game turned out to be one of the, I feel like a lot of times the low scoring games are not necessarily compelling as much as it's like, oh, why can't anybody do anything? Um, I don't think Louisiana and Appalachian State was that though. The First of all, as, as we mentioned in sort of the aftermath of Brian Kelly being Brian Kelly, there is a way to leave a job and it's to insist, first of all, that you be allowed to finish out the season with the team that you're coaching. Billy Napier stayed and coached with his guys at Louisiana through this conference championship game. At least I don't know if he's staying for the bowl game or not. I would imagine not because recruiting and and all being what it is, but he, he stayed for the bowl game. They ended up winning. You could tell that his players were extremely happy to be there with him. And boy, I talk about like, you don't really see many of the Rashid Wallace ball don't lie moments in football necessarily, but late in the game, Louisiana's got a one score lead app state's driving. And then the raging Cajuns get what appears to be a game ending sack uh, sack fumble. But then on the replay, first of all, they call it an incomplete pass. And that, that part of the ruling was correct. And then also they're like, Oh, and by the way, while we're on this replay, uh, since the game is not over because the fumble would have caused time to expire. Um, we're going to go ahead and throw a 15 yard penalty on this defender for, you know, doing the thing where he yanks his helmet off running. He, away he did a Dwayne Rudd. He did a Dwayne Rudd. <laughs> and so they set him up. They give app state a first down at midfield with about 25 seconds left. And then on the very next snap, a, a different pass rusher just beats his guy and takes the ball away from the quarterback. Just sack, like strip sack, gimme, Ball doesn't even hit the ground. He just takes it away from him. And I was like, that's that's the most ball don't lie moment I've ever seen in a football game. It just doesn't happen. So App State's run of four straight conference titles has come to an end. And uh, Billy Napier has been succeeded by Michael Desormo, who has an EAUX at the end of the name. That was an internal hire, but also a perfect one for Louisiana. The Raging Cajuns have a genuine EAUX. Yep, he's going to do fine. <laughs> and speaking of Billy Napier, right, Again, that's how you want to do things. That shows a lot of respect to, to, to the player. That shows a commitment to what you've built. He talked about how important that was to him to build a championship, win a championship with that program. And that, that was the first one that he'd won there. Um, meanwhile, while Cincinnati was locked in a tight, low-scoring game with Houston, you got to wonder if, you know, if a lot of Notre Dame players were watching this game, you know, understanding that if Cincy loses, they're going to the playoffs and take it. Fuck you, Kelly. 
<laughs> fucking coward, man. Like, yeah. Well, and you know, it was funny because after Kelly leaves for LSU, I was kind of like, I, th- I think this might have been something else that you and I kind of tossed around our heads, or maybe it was in the Slack, where it's like, man, how how do I want this to go? Like, on the one hand, wouldn't it be kind of funny? if Brian Kelly leaves Notre Dame to try to win a national title at LSU and then Notre Dame wins a title without him, like the team he built and left midseason wins the national title without him. Yeah. Cause you know, damn him. well that there is no way they would ever send him a ring. No, no. And that, yeah, that would, that would be a situation where you would approve of the, of the Notre Dame internal pettiness. And I, I would be a hundred percent on board with that. And Hopefully, all of his uh, all of his players would, you know, in their press conferences, take the time to thank their coaches and then list them all by name and do, and not mention Kelly. Like that is, I think that would be how I would want that to go. But given that that would still involve Notre Dame winning a national title, I was like, no, you know, I can't go that far. I can't quite say that I want that to happen. But if it were to happen. I would get a chuckle out of it. A few weeks ago, Brian Kelly said that there's no way he was leaving Notre Dame unless the fairy godmother gave him a check for $250 million. And in his intro presser at LSU, some reporter from a South Bend news station followed him down there and started off his question with, first off, I want to congratulate you for finding the fairy godmother. (laughs) Um, But enough about Brian Kelly. Let's actually talk about Cincinnati, which is much more important. Is Is it weird of me? So... I, I, as a Michigan State fan, I'm in kind of like a weird position as far as Cincinnati goes because we stole their coach a couple cycles ago in Mark D'Antonio, and we tried to steal their coach again two years ago with Luke Fickle. Um, we were rebuffed, but we still made the move. So I have to imagine there's some antagonism on their part towards us. Like they, they can't be big fans of Michigan State for the most part. I have to imagine they were very gratified to be able to hang on to Fickle. And I mean, this is much easier to say having made a successful move after Fickle said no. But is it weird, like, despite the fact that I really have no particular feelings towards Cincinnati one way or another, that I kind of want them to hang on to him and for the move of the Big 12 to go well? Like, is it condescending or patronizing or something as a fan of a Big Ten team to hope for other programs to be able to find true lasting success and not just be stepping stones and stuff like. No, not at all. Because think about this. They're eventually going to get to a spot where Ohio state can no longer ignore them. Hmm. As far as we need to play this non-conference in-state rivalry game. Oh, I disagree. I don't think they're ever going to agree to schedule Cincinnati now. Yeah, not anymore. No, that's, that's certainly a thing in the past, but. Cincinnati did get a tough defensive test from Houston, one of the top defenses in the American. Yeah. But uh, in the second quarter, uh, or in the, in the second half of what had been a 14-13 game to that point, Cincinnati scored three touchdowns and just blew it open. Yeah, Jerome Ford took over the game and was really one of the better players on the field. And I've kind of thought that like they've had this, re- this string of really good running backs there. They play kind of a, I wouldn't say buttoned up, but definitely a, a careful offensive style Defense is definitely really the identity of their team, I've always thought. You know, you talk about defensive struggles in the Big Ten a lot as being a euphemism for a game where the offense is just shitted it up a lot. This was a defensive struggle in the fact that both of these defenses decided their mission was to get as much pressure on these quarterbacks as possible. So you saw Clayton Toon and Desmond Ritter running for their lives a lot. 
Uh, Ritter responded a little better to the pressure. And of course, they were also able to take some of it off him in the second half with Jerome Ford. But it really was something to see them basically just, uh, you know, the quarterbacks were the, you know, the stars coming into this game. Both teams decided, well, then we'll, we'll rush six and seven. Yeah, and it's like that's that's what a defensive show yeah. can be in the sense of an entertaining defensive game. It doesn't have to look like it, you know, two quarterbacks missing wide open receivers by five yards and, and you know completing 40% of their passes, starting the game off with 12 consecutive punts. Like that's not what defensive football has to be. It can still be dynamic and interesting, and that's what we got in this game. So um, yeah, man. Uh so I guess there's no avoiding it any longer. Let's get to the it just means more game. Um, Alabama's winning the national title. Bryce Young's winning the Heisman. Eat at Arby's. Uh, there's not much else to say about it. <laughs> it was looking for just a brief moment there. Just a moment. Like Georgia was going to start slowly, slowly walking away with this one. Yeah. It really was because Georgia was Georgia was up uh, 10 nothing. And then they 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 had a third third and two for Alabama, right? Man, if they can get some pressure on here, force another punt, go up another score, boy, three scores is going to be a lot. And then up no, sixty seven yards to Jameson Williams touchdown. And yeah, then, you know, it, it used to be even as recently as like five years ago, it was the case that if you could control Alabama's ground game, that was how you had a real chance to win. But even though for most of this game, Alabama was protecting a like the whole second half, they were protecting a lead. And so you'd think they'd be in a run-heavy script. They still barely cracked 100 yards on the ground against Georgia. Like, Georgia did not get run over. Bryce Young just cut them up through the air badly enough that it's like, what is the solution to defend this kind of game? I mean, really the only thing that you do, and kind of looking forward a little bit, well, no, we'll, we'll save that. I was going to say, if you want to deal with opponents like this, what you have to have is the pass rusher. You, you can no longer just rely on shutting down the run. You have to get to the quarterback <laughs> And that's honestly why I think Michigan has a very real shot to win the national title, not because they're as good as Georgia or Alabama across the board, but because at that really key spot, they've got the two best guys in the country, in my opinion. Of course, you also have to then have guys that can cover their star receivers just enough that they can't, you know, that the quarterback can't make accurate enough throws under pressure to get to, you know, because if the quarterback knows they can find their guy pretty, pretty easily, then uh, the pressure can be mitigated a little bit with that. So it's, it's, uh, there's just so much that you have to have to do this. And, and I mean, that being said, Georgia did an adequate job of defense. They held the Alabama offense to 34 points. Um, Like again, you, you think normally that with the way most of these top flight offenses work, that's probably enough to win, but the, Dirty little secret this whole season, Georgia offensively is really not that dynamic. They're used to basically their defense putting so much pressure on you that their offense is able to win, you know, sort of bait through field position and running the ball capably and then timely passes from Stetson Bennett. But I'm just thinking to myself, going to this game, who are their star players on offense? Now, I guess you can really call White, White and Cook. Um uh, Zamir White and I forget Cook's first name. Their running backs are their stars. Their tight ends are really good too. That um, Bowers kid, that he's going to be incredible. Um, made a number of big chain moving plays. But again, you're talking about two running backs and a tight end. You we're know, not. George we're not talking about game breaking running backs. We're not talking about how how you know yeah. Nick Chubb or Todd Gurley were at Georgia or anything like yeah. that. 
it, nothing quite like that. Or even, you know, Swift and Michelle when they had them. Yeah, and it's strange because it's not like these guys are anything less than the way. I just and they haven't the, had the impact that those guys have. No, and like George and, Pickens uh, on the outside is probably going to be an NFL player at wide receiver. I think it's really it is just like I did I wasn't aware. Like it, and they didn't even say this, so maybe I'm wrong, but it sounds like at this point, JT Daniels is actually healthy enough to play and the coaching staff is just choosing to go with Stetson Bennett. Is that your understanding or am I just totally wrong? On I that? believe so. And it is. That's insane. Isn't that insane? Well, to, what if Bennett is just executing the offense better than Daniels at this point because he's had more reps, more practice time? <sighs> I mean, I mean are, are you telling me that you simply don't believe that a guy recruited that high could possibly fail to pan out uh, immediately, like, you know, in this time frame, especially when you consider that he's not been taking the practice reps? No, I'm not saying that, but I'm saying, like, when you watch Bennett play, it's clear this guy's got a, a low physical ceiling relative to the other quarterbacks you've yeah, seen. Yeah, absolutely. And opposing defenses know that. Like, they, you don't have to necessarily bother with a double move or anything. Uh as far as defending it goes, when you know that most of their throws have to be within 20 yards of the line of scrimmage, it's not going to get there fast enough. Like, I just, I, I don't get it. I, so, yeah, is this result surprising? It's not this... like JT Daniels was bad for them. I mean, he had like 700 passing yards in a couple games before he got hurt. I mean, it, he was fine. They just went to Bennett and the, the team rallies around him more or something. I just, like, okay, but you saw what the result was. So, here's like, the question have a vertical threat. Alabama didn't was not menaced by your passing game, and that's the result you got. What? Yeah, did. Who did Georgia play? That was any good. You have what is currently now number eighteen, Clemson, and well, then they snuck in Arkansas near the bottom of the top twenty-five. Yeah, but Arkansas, regardless of ranking, I thought was a good team. They had a brutal schedule. Arkansas did. They did. Um, so in the rest of the SEC East, I still think Kentucky is a pretty good team. Um, Tennessee was improved this year. I'm not going to say that they're great or notable win, but they're not a door, you know, a doormat the way they have been the last few years. There's, there's bad teams in the East. Um, nobody's going to say anything about South Carolina or Vanderbilt. Uh, who would the, I mean, <laughs> it's worth, I think it's worth noting that earlier in the season, Florida certainly looked like a good win. I think by the time Georgia played them, that was kind of over with. But you can only play the teams that are on your schedule. I I honestly don't remember who the other crossovers were because the SEC only plays the eight conference games, right? So right. it was Arkansas, and there would have been one other. Auburn. Ah, okay. So, look, Auburn was a team. How many weeks in a row did we say, how is this team still ranked? They finished three and five in conference plays, six and six overall. Yeah, so – no, it, it's not like they played a murderer's row, uh, but to shut teams down to the extent that they did, I mean, we were talking about their defense as an all-time great from a fantasy perspective, for example, and that's not something that you can fit. Like, there's a, there is a certain baseline of quality even with those opponents. So, like you said, Clemson turned out to be bad, but nobody knew that at the time, and their defense is still elite in Georgia. Well, nevertheless, you got to reshuffle the divisions now because Georgia <laughs> lost badly in the title game, so you got to reshuffle the divisions I, you know, honestly, I, in other conference, like, you really got to tell me if you reshuffled the divisions in the ACC every year that anyone would notice. Speaking of, yeah, that's what we're going to pivot to right now. I'm going to talk about this first because this is the game I would have much rather watched instead of the Big Ten championship game. It was 
it, man, it was a weird game. So ton of points were scored early. I think it was like 21-14 at the end of the first quarter or something like that. And But then it was like clearly both teams had redlined their engines because both, both offenses just stopped doing anything for a long time. And so I believe it was like 24-21 when I circled back to it, like mid-late third quarter. And then late in this game, it turned into a romp for Pitt. They had like a multiple interceptions. And it was so strange. We're going to have to be careful talking about this because I understand. Well, but- it, it was a very strange and awkward moment what happened because Pitt had taken a 31-21 lead, but Wake Forest was still moving the ball successfully. Yeah, they had and the ball. Certainly by, by no means did it seem like the game was, you know, anywhere close to over. And at this point, ESPN chose to bring up a really sad story involving Wake Forest star quarterback who really has been a lot of fun to watch this week uh, or this whole year in Sam Hartman. Uh, and they chose to bring up they chose this moment to bring up how, you know, he he lost a brother uh, and really struggled with coming to terms for that. And, you know, where's number 10 to honor him? It was it was such a complete story that they clearly researched a lot of that. They, they had, you know, they even had. They had a slideshow and they had music to go with it and such and bad piano and everything. And then yeah. as, like, as they're cutting back to the action from telling that story, throws a backbreaking interception. That was nearly returned for a touchdown. Pitt punches, punches it in and Hartman immediately throws another pick. And it's like, like they, they, they did this story in a situation where it's like, now you're really rooting for the kid so much. And then he just starts throwing interceptions. It just, they couldn't have controlled any of that. And that, and that, you know, he obviously had no idea that any, it's got nothing, it's got nothing to do with him. It's just the timing of it made it like, it's even sadder now. Yeah, no, it's like the, the way that it lined up, it, you would have thought they were piping the story into his helmet mic or something. It, it was absolutely just uncanny. Um, and then you so of course, it, the game gets out of hand. Hartman ends up throwing four interceptions, I believe. They pull him, put the backup in, kind of you know waving the flag a little bit, and they kept putting the camera back on him. Like, oh man, look how sad he is now. I'm just like, well, damn, of course he is. Like, it was it was just a strange because the thing is, right up until that point, they had oh god, I forget who the lead guy is, but um, they had Robert Griffin with him. And they were Quinn Kessenich. Quinn Kessenich. Yes, Kes- well, I thought Kessenich was a sideline guy, but anyway, they they had the booth was having so much more fun calling that game than anybody in the SEC game or in the Big Ten game. Even though I mean, you know, Gus and Clatt are over the moon that Michigan is finally successful after they've been preaching it for years, and still the ACC booth had so much more fun until they got to that. And it was so weird. Um, yeah. It again, a game that was very good for about two and a half quarters, and then the wheels just absolutely fell off for Wake. And so Pitt is success. Pitt wins. They've and you know they're everybody's got a story like that, right? So they're talking about Trey Tipton, who's gone through like three season-ending injuries to come back and be a major contributor for that team, and it's just like it was one of those things where, as you say, when they decided to play that thing in the broadcast. It's like this game is not out of hand in either direction. It was just one of those things where clearly the producer who is queuing stuff up is like, you know what? I made this sad video. Damned if I'm not playing this sad video at some point during this broadcast. Now is the time. I'm shooting my shot. It it reminds me a bit of the whole thing where, you know, 
in the NFL draft, it's like, all right, let's look at some of these highlights. Now let's talk about the lowest point of this person's life. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. It, as, as though it's like, I'm obviously, you know, I'm rooting for the guys already, but man, you know, <laughs> it's no, I, it's unfortunate that it has to have that kind of impact. There, and I think it's this, I think it's this like ongoing sort of subliminal campaign, like, you, it's it's okay all the suffering that they go through because look at how look at what the reward ultimately is they've been through all this personal difficulty and you know the immense sacrifices that it takes to be a division one athlete and still not really paid anything approaching an actual value even with nil uh but oh man you know like don't you feel better now that you know who the guy under the helmet is and like you have a personal connection to them so it's okay that you're watching like so, yes, you set this up. You set up this personal connection. You get the audience, the emotional investment in Sam Hartman, <laughs> only for things to just go as poorly as possible for the poor guy after that. It was yeah. it's really a strange turn of events. Hey, so you mentioned uh, um, you know, a couple guys that predicted Michigan to return to glory. You know who else did three years ago? Is uh, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad. I- I'm sure you've seen No, this is an actual tweet. I'm, I'm sure you've seen it where... He's replying yes. to some thread. <laughs> Inshallah, the U of M shall return to glory through hard work and dedication or whatever. Uh, hey, look, man, Iranian intelligence has a lot of good sources in this country, supposedly. So <laughs> everybody knows. Um, so, yeah, final score here, Michigan 42, Iowa 3. I think Ferentz waved the flag on this game very early when on a drive deep into Michigan territory, he settled for a 33-yard field goal. That was missed, and then Michigan turned around and ripped off a 67-yard touchdown. Um, and then on their next, I think it was on their next possession, or maybe two possessions later, Iowa again kicked a short field goal. This time they made it, and then Michigan scored a 75-yard touchdown. And it was just like, do you see, Kirk? Do you see the mistake you made here in assuming that field goals are going to be enough for a team that actually has explosive play capability and is better than you at damn near every position? Like, I just. <laughs> I can't believe that they didn't adjust their approach somewhat, but I shouldn't be surprised because he's never adjusted his approach because, and he, and he still won't by the way, because despite running out one of the worst offenses in the big 10 that I've ever seen. And keep in mind, I root for Michigan state. I also by weird coincidence end up watching a lot of Northwestern football. Still Iowa's offense this year was one of the worst offenses I've ever seen in this conference, but they won 10 games. They won the West. They've got a pretty good shot at winning a pretty good bowl game. Nothing is going to change. They've got 35 more years of fairness between Kirk and Brian. And that's assuming none of Brian's kids end up going into coaching. Now, I, because I am a fan of a Big Ten West team that is not Purdue or Wisconsin, came away from this game thinking, how the fuck did my team lose to Iowa? Like, my team is five and seven and is Illinois. And I was still thinking, how did we lose to these guys? I'm sure Northwestern fans were thinking, how did we lose to this team? They won 10 games. There are 10 fan bases who watch this game and ask themselves, how the hell did we lose to Iowa? I would wager that includes Colorado State, who went 3-9 and and fired their coach. They're probably wondering, how did we lose to Iowa? Well, like, there were a number of times this season, more than a lot of seasons in the past, I will appreciate, I do appreciate that about this season, where we made some kind of a prediction or, or set something up as a joke um, just based on, you know, kind of memes or what we thought were funny storylines and that that's actually what happened. The best example is every single Nebraska game, right? Where yeah, well, we, we knew it was going to happen. And then, yeah. you know, for instance, we, you know, 
there's also some prediction that like Brett Bielema could get a small lead and sit on somebody. There was all these kind of things that were like, well, actually, yeah, that's kind of how this uh, sort of thing can, you know, can, can go. Um, but it really followed a lot of the, the memes and jokes that we made about it. And you know what the best example is? Kirk Ferentz on fourth and four from the Michigan 49 down 14 to three when Michigan's just been killing you on offense so far, punting. Yeah, because I mean, he wants because he wants to get home, man. He just yeah, wants to get home. He's 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 cold. He's getting cranky. Yeah, it's past his bedtime. Just wants to beat traffic. That's a problem with an eight o'clock kick, man. It, it was never going to go any other way. So, from the Michigan perspective, I, I don't know what there is to say. Like it, it, they were again, they were vastly more talented on both sides of the ball, and they played like it. Their play calling was dramatically better. Probably one of the better play calling sequences that Josh Gaddis has had there um, with the two play. I mean. Corum was really just kind of an individual effort, but the double pass um, talking about, I mean, that's a freshman running back throwing an absolute dime to a receiver streaking down the side. Like that's not an easy pass. Lots of quarterbacks don't make that throw. Um, and so you finally got like, there's, there had been this kind of philosophical tension with Josh Gaddis supposedly wanting to be a speed and space guy, like a lot more spread and getting the ball out quickly than Harbaugh wanting to run the ball. And it took them quite a while to figure it out, but it kind of feels like the two concepts have meshed at long last. And look, the results a lot more pleasing to watch than it's been the last couple of years. And as far as Iowa goes, it's there was a, something funny that I noticed also, which was so it's probably true that Michigan's defensive ends would have gotten pressure regardless of who their tackles were. I mean, they beat up Ohio State's tackles last week, and those guys are both going to play in the NFL. But it's just so funny that Iowa's back here in the conference championship game six years since they last went. And both of those times, so when they, in 2015, in the game against Michigan State, really the biggest single factor, the biggest matchup in my mind that let Michigan State win that game was that Shalit Calhoun beat their left tackle like a drum. Um, they, Bethard had pressure all night, could barely stand in the pocket. That was the biggest single thing I thought. And then after that game, the seasons that followed, Iowa found Alaric Jackson and Tristan Wirfs. So they had multi-year starters, absolute brick walls at both tackle spots, but they didn't make it back to the conference title game with either of those guys. And now that both of those guys are gone, they had a huge drop-off at play at offensive tackle this year. And now they go back to the conference title game where, oh, look at that. The opponent's two best players are defensive ends. Uh, it's just like, it's such a strange way that that echoed through, forward through time. Um, well, in the immortal words of the artist George Lucas, it's like, again, it's like poetry, so they rhyme. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, at, and at this point, when, we, when I talk about blue chip recruiting, it's a you know it's kind of a systemic thing that the idea is not that once you get reached this certain level you are guaranteed a national championship it's that you can guarantee yourself shots you can get, guarantee yourself a talent pool enough to get to you know the playoff if given this many years and you're sustaining this kind of talent level then statistically speaking you are very likely to break through and get a shot and that's just a testament to the fact that Michigan has remained at that level for long enough to you know that that they didn't fall back from that level and they did convert one of these uh, I wouldn't have picked this to be the one that the, the opportunity that they converted but they did there's not a single team in the Big Ten that I would pick to beat them right now um, you know of course I would have said 
before the last week of the regular season, I would have said, oh, okay, well, I think Wisconsin is going to give him a much better game. But then Wisconsin went and shit the bed against Minnesota. And it's like, well, I can't really credibly say that, you know? No. And the, well, and the other thing about recruiting like that is that it also makes it sustainable. Like there's really, as much as I would love it to be the case, there's nothing about this particular Michigan roster that tells you that they're not going to be able to continue something like this going forward. Like say, for example, Hutchinson and Ajabo are both draft eligible. I mean, Hutchinson is obviously going to go. He's going to be a top 10 pick at the worst. And I think Ajabo would certainly be a second or third round pick too. Even if both of those guys go and you think, oh man, what are they going to do to find a pass rusher? Well, they're probably just going to turn to their high four-star. The next guy up, I think, is Braden McGregor, an in-state guy like number 120 or something in the country. And you assume that with a couple years of development, he's going to be a player like that. And he's not the only guy at that level they recruited that position. So uh, that's that's the importance of recruiting and we're gonna have a little bit more i mean not on this podcast but i have the national signing overview kind of thing prepped to look forward and included among that i'll have kind of a rolling average of what certain teams have done over the last few years that you can kind of get an impression if you know maybe it's a team in the other division that you don't watch very much or pay very close attention to if you have them coming up on the schedule you'll be able to look at that and inform yourself as to what the general talent pool of this team is now of course none of that accounts for transfers in or out or all that it's way too much work and i'm not going to do it but in other um, words it's going to be hilariously incomplete because there's only so much you can do the transfers are such a huge are going to be such a huge part of this moving forward yeah and i'm sorry but i'm not for 14 teams going through and tracking all the roster moves for the past five years that's just they don't pay me enough for that Source for Big Ten Cog, it's a tackle empire.